Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books and Philosophy channel of the New Books Network. My name is Robert Talese. I'm professor of philosophy at Vanderbilt University. I co-host the channel with Carrie Figder. Carrie is associate professor of philosophy at the University of Iowa. Today, my guest is Professor Claudio Lopez Guerra. His new book is titled Democracy and Disenfranchisement, The Morality of Electoral Exclusions. It has just been published by Oxford University Press. Lopez Guerra is research professor in the Department of Political Studies at the Center for Research and Teaching in Economics in Mexico City. Modern democracy is built around a collection of moral and political commitments. Among the most familiar and central of these concerns voting. It's commonly held that legitimate government requires a system of universal suffrage. Yet Democrats tend to hold that certain exclusions are nevertheless permissible. For example, it's commonly thought that children and the mentally impaired may justifiably be disenfranchised. We also tend to think that the disenfranchisement of felons and non-citizen residents is permissible. Indeed, these exclusions are often thought to be consistent with universal suffrage. In Democracy and Disenfranchisement, Claudio Lopez Guerra challenges our common understandings about voting. Ultimately, he argues in favor of an elitist system of enfranchisement by lottery. He also challenges arguments that universal suffrage is consistent with the exclusion of children, the mentally impaired, felons, and resident non-citizens. The result is a fascinating and provocative exploration of the fundamental idea that voting is a basic right. Let's turn to the interview. Hello, Claudio Lopez Guerra. Hi, Bob. Uh, Thank you for inviting me to your show. It's great to be here. Well, thank you for uh, agreeing to uh, talk to us today on New Books in Philosophy. And thank you, listeners, uh, for joining us. Today, my guest is Claudio Lopez Guerra. Uh, We'll be talking about his new book, Democracy and Disenfranchisement, The Morality of Electoral Exclusions. This is a challenging and provocative book that I highly recommend. Um, In it, Claudio lays out a common conception of suffrage among Democrats and Democratic theorists and then challenges it thoroughly. Um, To be a little more precise, Claudio subjects to criticism the common views about who may vote, who may be denied suffrage, uh, such that whereas we commonly hold that, say, children and felons may be disenfranchised, uh, Claudio denies this. More strikingly, he argues for a system by which large numbers of citizens would be disenfranchised for being politically incompetent. Now, we just had an election in the United States. Um, In fact, while we're recording this, it was last week. Um, So perhaps it's fitting to discuss issues like these uh, after an election that I suspect um, uh, had results that many people were disappointed with. Um, So there's a lot to talk about. But first, Claudio, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Uh, Well, I was um, born and raised in Mexico City. I was lucky uh, to have a relatively well-off family. Uh, However, as I was growing up, I um, participated in several social work projects during secondary and high school which uh, made a, a very important impact on me because I, I was faced with the, the reality of uh, millions of, of my compatriots, most Mexicans who live in very dire conditions. And uh, I was uh, honestly shocked by, by the reality in which they had to live in. And uh, that was contrasted with my, my own experience. And, and that moved me to to try to 
to think uh, and, and do something, you know, about about this reality. And that's how I started asking, you know, the basic questions in political philosophy. What is a just society? Uh, what should we do about uh, the suffering of all these individuals? Uh, to what extent are we responsible? And so on. And um, so, so that's how I got involved in, in moral and political philosophy. I, I, um, I first did a, a BA degree in political science, and then I went to do the PhD uh, also in political science with an emphasis, of course, in, in political philosophy at Columbia University. I, I was very lucky to, to have wonderful advisors there. Um, I, I worked with uh, Jan Elster, Brian Berry, uh, Thomas Poge, uh, and David Johnston, and uh, it, this was a wonderful experience. And uh, well, after that sounds like a very nice group. <laughs> yes, yes, uh, it was it was excellent. And uh, around that time at Columbia, there were other major theorists as well in in, in other departments in the law school. Uh, Joseph Rass was there, and also uh, Jeremy Waldron. So, and of course, well, you know the 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 academic life uh, in in New York with you know uh, the other universities around. New, New York University and Princeton and Yale being so close. Um, uh, well, it was definitely uh, a very stimulating environment for me. And um, well, after graduation, I, I returned um, with my wife to, to, to Mexico City and we reunited with our old friends and families and we've been uh, here since then. I now um, teach at the Center for Research and Teaching in Economics, uh, better known as CIDE. Uh, in Mexico City, which is a kind of um, institute for advanced study in the social sciences, basically. It's a public institution, and I'm in the in the Department of, of, of Political Studies there uh, doing uh, all this well, work on, on the normative dimension of uh, public, public issues. Well, excellent. Um, it's always nice to hear that... Um, um uh, somebody's gotten into political philosophy uh, as a result of confronting something actually political. Um, so um, let's turn to the book, um, Democracy and, and Disenfranchisement. Um, so it seems to me that the book, we can think of the book as sort of sort of pressing a kind of a sort of dual view. Um, first, you want to reject um, a standard view among Democrats about uh, suffrage, uh, and you want to replace that view uh, with with a different kind of view of suffrage. Um, and this is all uh, in the service of a, a sort of broader um, uh, inquiry into the justifiability of excluding uh, people from the franchise. Um, but the way that you set up the issue is you contrast um, two doctrines about um, about suffrage, um, the critical suffrage doctrine, which is your own doctrine, uh, and the more common, as you call it, uh, conventional suffrage doctrine. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, those two doctrines and their contrast? Sure, of course. Now, to get there, let me first say that, well, the book is largely... Uh, response, an intellectual response to an ongoing practical problem. So that's how I got interested in, in this topic. Uh, you know, the allocation of the right to vote continues to be a very important practical problem in many countries. In the United States, there are some important controversi controversies, for instance, yeah. on whether felons should be allowed to vote. And this is, uh, you know, uh, not only in the United States, but in many other, in many other countries. So, so, uh, most of the cases I deal with in the book are ongoing practical problems. And when I started thinking about these issues, I was surprised by the fact that uh, in political philosophy, we have actually neglected uh, the right to vote as a subject of serious intellectual inquiry, which we just simply uh, take it for granted. And um, we haven't really isolated for serious philosophical scrutiny as we have done with other rights, such as the right to freedom of speech. So in, in starting to, to think seriously about these, these problems, whether felons should vote, whether the mentally impaired should be allowed, whether the voting age should be uh, reduced, uh, whether 
expatriates should be allowed to vote, all these things. Um, well, I, I was dissatisfied with um, the standard approach to these cases in, in the literature uh, as well as in political discourse. And this standard approach simply assumes, it takes for granted that uh, the right to vote is a basic, uh, a fundamental right. And that in thinking about these cases, we should approach them uh, with, with that uh, premise in mind, the idea that the franchise is a basic moral right. So I, I started questioning this, and, and in the end, uh, I, I found myself um, disagreeing, indeed, with the way in which most people understand the nature of the right to vote as, as a fundamental right, and also what they think we should be doing in, in all these cases. So, so indeed, the purpose of the book is to criticize what I call the conventional suffrage doctrine. Uh, in, in the book, I lay out this doctrine as having uh, five precepts. Uh, the first one is that it is never permissible to exclude uh, sane adults for being politically ignorant. The second precept uh, is that the exclusion of minors and the mentally impaired can be justified. The third precept is that the exclusion, the disenfranchisement of non-citizens residing in the polity is justified, whereas, and this is the fourth precept, the exclusion of citizens residing in another polity cannot be justified. And finally, most people believe that disenfranchising felons is uh, permissible. So basically, what the book, what I argue in the book, is that we should uh, adopt the opposite of this conventional uh, suffrage doctrine. I defend, I defend it. I, I call it the the critical suffrage doctrine, which argues basically the opposite of these claims. So specifically, I argue that if done through a specific method that I call the enfranchisement lottery, universal suffrage is not justified. And this undermines the first precept of the conventional suffrage doctrine, um, because the enfranchisement lottery, as I'm sure we'll have an opportunity to discuss in the conversation, is a device that would exclude the vast majority of people on the basis, on the presumption that they are not sufficiently competent to vote. Uh, in the book, I also argue that in the backdrop of universal suffrage, it is hard to justify the exclusion of minors and the mentally impaired, as well as the exclusion of felons, uh, whereas it is hard to justify the exclusion of non-resident, sorry, non-citizen residents and non-resident uh, citizens. So. Uh, indeed, what I do in the book is to argue that some forms of disenfranchisement that we, that most people deem acceptable, when we think seriously about them, they are not acceptable. Whereas some forms of disenfranchisement that we regard as unacceptable are, in fact, um, acceptable. Right. So, and now our listeners will hear. Uh, what, what I meant when uh, I just a moment ago uh, said that the book was was provocative, right? Um, it seems as if uh, you're starting with a, a a pretty apt description of some ordinary thoughts among democratic citizens, and I should add democratic theorists about voting, and saying that um, you know our central thoughts about these things. Um, uh, should be rejected, or at least there's a strong case to be made for rejecting them and accepting um, their negations. Um, so why don't we begin then uh, in sort of working through um, some of these uh, uh, components of the, the critical suffrage doctrine. And um, I take it that um, there might be some respects in which uh, the first premise that, that uh, of the critical suffrage doctrine, that it, it, it is permissible to exclude large numbers of people on the basis of their political ignorance um, in the wake of, a, of an election, uh, at least in the United States, might not be so unpopular. Um, can you tell us a little bit about um, uh, what you call the enfranchisement lottery, which is your alternative? Sure. So let me give just a little bit of background first. Sure. In the effort of, of justifying democracy, political philosophers 
have always tried to thought of alternatives, right? And by democracy, of course, I mean mostly modern democracy, of which universal suffrage is a critical component. And, you know, so, so the exercise of justifying universal suffrage and democracy versus alternatives is inevitably a comparative exercise. Now, the most important alternative to universal suffrage in the literature is uh, John Stuart Mill's plural voting system. And I think right. political philosophers uh, defending universal suffrage have certainly done a pretty good job in rebuking uh, Mill's uh, system. But I don't think that they, that we, political philosophers, have done a pretty good job in thinking about other alternatives to universal suffrage. So the moment we start thinking seriously about the allocation of the right to vote as a problem of institutional design, as a problem of thinking about alternatives that may be justifiable, uh, then we will find that we haven't done really a, a good job in this regard, that there are alternatives to universal suffrage that are not Mill's plural voting system that uh, you know, will, will, will make us reconsider, perhaps, or that's what I try to argue, the, the normative status of universal suffrage and consequently the status of the right to vote as a fundamental right. So the enfranchisement lottery is precisely that, an alternative allocation, uh, an alternative system for allocating uh, the right to vote. So the, so the idea is, is as follows. So imagine universal suffrage in the best possible way, according to your own standards. And then imagine that we draw a random sample, we select a random sample of individuals from that universe of, of potential voters. Uh, I call this device the exclusionary sortition um, because it would tell us who would not be entitled to vote in the next election. So those who are not randomly selected through this sortition would be excluded for the next election. Now, suppose further that once we have this group of individuals that we might call the pre-voters, call them the pre-voters because they would not necessarily be automatically entitled to vote, suppose that they, in order to become enfranchised, finally enfranchised, they would have to go through what I call a competence-building process to acquire um, relevant information about uh, the alternatives on the ballot. Now, just to give uh, an idea to our listeners of what this entails, I mean, this is clearly uh, inspired uh, to some extent uh, by the literature, the recent literature in democratic theory on mini-publics, uh, which consists on the creation of representative samples of the population that would then become uh, more competent or enlightened by acquiring relevant information and, um, and this would be a way of keeping uh, the virtues of, of inclusion uh, while at the same time improving the epistemic quality of, of, of the process. So what I argue is that this system, um, the enfranchisement lottery, would surpass, would be preferable to universal suffrage from an epistemic point of view, that is to say that there are reasons, good reasons to believe that under this system, the quality of electoral outcomes would be better. Um, and that therefore, from this purely epistemic perspective, um, Democrats and advocates of universal suffrage cannot reasonably object to it. A uh, next claim I make is that Nevertheless, universal suffrage has some advantages over the enfranchisement lottery. Uh, specifically, it is uh, the universal suffrage is a mechanism for deciding who is going to exercise political power that is more transparent and less conflict-prone than the enfranchisement lottery, in the sense that, at least in certain contexts, there could be reasonable doubts about whether the sortition and the competence-building process of the enfranchisement lottery was truly 
uh, impartial and random, whether it was, you know, that it was not rigged and so on. Uh, so these doubts, especially in certain contexts, uh, contexts of polities with uh, um, where the rule of law is not well established and where there is a history of corruption and distrust in public institutions, in those contexts, uh, we can imagine uh, that the operation of the enfranchisement lottery could actually uh, lead to um, post-electoral conflicts that would be uh, problematic, whereas universal suffrage uh, has an advantage over the lottery system from this perspective that, that I call in the book the perspective of uh, political stability. Uh, however, mm -hmm. I, I do argue that in other contexts, in contexts of well-established democracies with a strong rule of law and low, low levels of corruption and high levels of, of trust in public institutions, uh, these uh, relative disadvantages of the enfranchisement lottery would be muted so that it would be perfectly acceptable to adopt this system, the lottery system, in, in those societies uh, for purposes of um, the epistemic gains that, that we can reasonably expect, as well as other advantages that it has, such as uh, a reduction in the costs of uh, of the electoral process, which is a relevant consideration since, I mean, we can use that extra money to fight poverty or uh, develop other social programs, for instance. So, uh, so basically, uh, what I do is precisely argue that the enfranchisement lottery is a justifiable alternative to universal suffrage uh, that excludes the vast majority of the people um, in a society from 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 the right to vote, and um, that therefore it is difficult to think of the franchise as a as a basic um, moral right. Excellent. Let me get, let me just ask a question about the enfranchisement lottery. Um, a lot of the work, uh, at least that I'm familiar with, about mini publics and um, deliberative polls and these kinds of um, uh, sort of theoretical endeavors to uh, improve the epistemic um, quality of democratic decisions by um, sort of taking smaller groups and trying to improve them uh, epistemically as far as the political issues go. Um, a lot of these these proposals want ultimately to make a claim about how um, a properly construed mini public or an, and, and a uh, properly informed mini public would be making decisions that a properly informed universal suffrage uh, population would make that somehow there's some representativeness of the properly informed mini public uh, so that what they choose is what the broader population would choose anyway, if they were properly instructed um, does your I, I I didn't see in your view any claim about the representativeness of the um, enfranchisement the results of an enfranchisement lottery is that right that you're not committed to the claim that um, once we've got the the we we select a, a demographically um, representative sample of pre-voters and then subject them to this competence building exercise you're you're not committed to the claim that then what the competent ones would choose can be understood as representing what the broader population would, cho would choose if everybody were competent? No. So I do not understand the enfranchisement lottery um, as um, institution, as a device that would be representative in that sense, mm -hmm. uh, in the sense that you know that the voters that were would be randomly selected would be acting as the representatives of the rest of the population. Uh, no, actually, my claim is that the enfranchisement lottery is an alternative uh, to universal suffrage, and the voters in that system would not be accountable to the rest of the population in that sense. They would not be their representatives. This is just an alternative system for allocating the right to vote. Now, the, there is an important sense, however, in which the enfranchisement lottery would be, uh, quote-unquote, representative, uh, which is that 
indeed, if the sortition is properly done, properly carried out, the uh, group of, of voters that would be selected would be demographically identical to uh, the, 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 the group of voters under universal uh, suffrage. So this is actually a very important reason um, why the advocate of universal suffrage would not be able to object to this system from an epistemic point of view. Uh, that is to say, the electorate under the enfranchisement lottery would not be biased uh, in favor of some demographic uh, group. So uh, from, from this perspective, uh, let me put it this way. So if we eliminate the second component of the enfranchisement lottery, what I called the competence building process, and we only carry out the exclusionary sortition, then uh, under this system, uh, we would have exactly the same results as we get under universal suffrage, uh, because the electorate would be identically, uh, would be composed in, a, in an identical way to the, to the electorate under universal suffrage. So um, the worries that political philosophers have expressed about systems like Mills plural voting system, such as the worry that uh, along with education, uh, that, that education is correlated with other traits such as uh, wealth and um, income, uh, and that would produce a biased electorate that would neglect the interests of the poor. I mean, that kind of objection wouldn't apply to my system. Uh, precisely because the sample would be representative of the whole. However, I do want to insist that the voters under this system would not be the representatives of the rest of the citizens. This would just be another uh, system for for deciding who is to have um, the right to vote. Excellent. Um, that, that's that's a helpful clarification, um, in, especially in setting apart your view from um, some other um, <clears throat> uh, proposals that have been made um, in the name of, you know, sort of middle of the road mainstream democratic theory. Um, so uh, let's then turn to the view, uh, uh, the next sort of element, which is um, uh, children and the mentally impaired. So. Um, the, the the standard or the the conventional suffrage doctrine um, maintains that um, it's permissible uh, to withhold uh, suffrage or to disenfranchise children and the mentally impaired. Um, your view, the critical suffrage doctrine, denies this. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about um, uh, this uh, this component? Sure. Uh, let me just first make a, an important uh, clarification. Um, in the process of arguing for the different precepts of the critical suffrage doctrine, well, the first one is, as, as we just um, discussed, a direct attack, a, attack on, on the idea that uh, there are no justifiable alternatives to universal suffrage. Uh, but then, in, in discussing these other cases, the mentally impaired, children, felons, and so on, I am no longer... Um, thinking about these two alternatives, universal suffrage and enfranchisement lottery. Uh, I am simply assuming a backdrop, an institutional backdrop of universal suffrage. I do this because the per one of the purposes of the book is to shed light on current practical controversies. So what I'm trying to say is that uh, my answer to the question of whether children, the mentally impaired, felons, and all these other cases that follow should be or may be uh, disenfranchisement, uh, disenfranchised presupposes universal suffrage as a backdrop, uh, uh, as, the, as the institutional background. I, I leave it as an open question uh, whether we, sh what we should do about these cases if uh, a system of enfranchisement lottery were in place. So, um, having clarified that, uh, let me now go over. Yes, the argument for thinking that the exclusion of children and mentally impaired individuals is hard to justify in a society with um, uh, universal suffrage. So the standard argument for excluding these types of persons 
children and the mentally impaired is uh, instrumental and it's epistemic. The idea is that if they were uh, to have the right to vote, then uh, the quality of electoral outcomes would suffer um, somehow. Now, um, I don't think that we have actually pretty good arguments for arriving at that um, conclusion. So typically when people think about these cases, they imagine an electorate that is entirely composed of children and mentally impaired individuals. Whereas the relevant question to ask is whether in conjunction with the other voters, uh, their inclusion would uh, tend to deteriorate the quality of electoral outcomes. Uh, another problem that is uh, frequently made uh, is that, uh, for instance, by Robert Dahl and other democratic theorists, is to make the claim that, well, these individuals clearly are not capable of ruling the polity. But in voting, we are not ruling. This association is obviously problematic, and we would certainly reach different conclusions if what were at stake is uh, different forms of political uh, involvement or, or participation. So the question, the, the relevant question, uh, I think, is whether adding these groups of persons to the electorate, as we currently know it, would make matters worse. Now, <laughs> I do not think that there are any compelling uh, theories or studies showing uh, that this would actually uh, be the case. So what exactly would the enfranchisement of these types of individuals would have to produce in order for us to, to say that the quality of electoral outcomes has worsened? I think that's the relevant question. Um, we cannot say, for instance, that every now and then perhaps uh, the outcome would have been different. I mean, if one party wins or another wins, I mean, in the end, uh, we cannot simply say that th this would justify the disenfranchisement of an entire group. Um, in, to begin with, if, if an electoral outcome would be entirely unacceptable morally, then there would be reasons uh, to ban that party in the first place rather than to exclude the voters that would presumably vote for them. Now, children and the mentally impaired would be voting for one of the established options that other sane adults, uh, citizens, would be voting for. So it would be very difficult just to say that uh, the, that the difference in, in outcomes uh, would signal uh, lower quality. What we would have simply is, as it currently happens for other reasons, I know the weather and other reasons, you know, outcomes, uh, turn out to be different by a small margin. And uh, just saying that um, every now and then the outcomes might be different after the enfranchisement of these persons wouldn't be any proof that they would have been different for the worse. So what we would need is some kind of evidence that the enfranchisement of these groups would actually um, produce uh, lower quality representatives, such as, you know, the, the idea would be that if these groups were enfranchised, uh, more corrupt and abusive leaders would be elected, or that uh, parties that are currently uh, not running or non-existent would suddenly emerge and they would have some terrible moral views and they would gain some political influence. Uh, but we simply have no reason to believe that uh, such things uh, would happen. Uh, in the end, uh, these individuals would be voting for alternatives that are already established and deem acceptable to, to run and, and to compete. And all of the theories saying that perhaps these individuals are uh, more easily influenced or that they wouldn't be really knowing what they're doing at the polls don't really amount up to a compelling case that epistemically their enfranchisement, uh, compared to the enfranchisement of other uh, sane adults, 
would uh, deteriorate uh, the quality of outcomes. In the end, also, one can invoke uh, arguments about the long-term effects of the enfranchisement of these individuals that would suggest that their inclusion is actually beneficial. I don't know, someone could claim, for instance, that uh, early participation would um, produce in the long run more competent citizens, more engaged uh, citizens, even if in the short run they do not make very wise uh, electoral decisions. So the problem is then who is to say whether the overall long-term net effect is, um, is, is for the worse. Um, we do not really have any sort of solid evidence to, to prove this. And it would be uh, unacceptable on, in a scheme of universal suffrage to exclude some other broad class of persons on the basis of such weak evidence. So I think we should apply the same standard for these um, classes of persons. So um, if I'm right about this, the, the epistemic um, case for disenfranchisement, for disenfranchising these uh, classes of persons is, is hard to, to justify. And just, just to give um, some anecdotal evidence about this, uh, in, in Canada, for instance, um, many mentally impaired individuals started uh, suing um, in court. Uh, they, they claimed that their rights had been violated because there was a provision in, in, in Canada that disenfranchised everyone who had been formally, legally appointed a guardian. But many people who were in this situation were, still believed that they were uh, competent and interested in uh, in, in exercising the right to vote, so they sued and they started winning the cases, the, uh, the, their case. And at some point, uh, Parliament, uh, you know, the, the issue came up to, to decision in Parliament in the 1990s. And in trying to come up with a more fine-grained criterion for determining uh, who had the appropriate competence uh, to vote, the Parliament simply uh, concluded that. Um, there was no such uh, effective uh, criterion and that the best thing was to uh, err on the side of over-inclusiveness uh, to ensure that everyone that was capable and interested had the right to vote. And since then, uh, everyone, uh, I, I mean, the, the, the disenfranchisement of, of, person, of mentally impaired persons in Canada is, um, was repealed, so... No one is denied the right to vote on that basis. And to this point, I mean, well, you can look at the results. No one has shown and or will show that the quality of electoral outcomes in Canada has clearly deteriorated uh, since. So um, that's with respect to the to the argument. I mean, this is this is a, a negative argument in, in the book. I'm trying to dismiss the claim that their enfranchisement would reduce the quality of electoral outcomes. But then I make a more uh, positive argument, uh, which uh, tries to identify a criterion for um, inclusion in, in this regard. So I, I develop what I call the, the franchise capacity. Uh, mm -hmm. I develop this idea, which is basically the notion that uh, individuals have the, uh, the mental powers uh, the mental and moral powers to understand what an election is about and to have a legitimate interest uh, in participating. And um, on the basis of this criterion, I look at empirical evidence on development studies to try to, to identify when we acquire this franchise capacity, this cognitive and moral capacity to, to value and understand uh, the act of voting. And on that basis, try to establish a, a more compelling uh, threshold for allocating the right to vote. So I basically say that any person who has this franchise capacity um, should be allowed um, to vote, particularly in the, irrespective of age, particularly because we do not have any, any good reasons to believe that doing so, enfranchising them, would deteriorate um, the quality of electoral outcomes. And now just to give a rough idea of what 
where this threshold of franchise capacity is. Uh, well, given the, the studies I consulted, um, individuals uh, at the age of age already have uh, this capacity, uh, the franchise uh, capacity. Um, this is not to say that they are politically as politically sophisticated as adults or that they, you know, have the relevant experience and so on. It is simply to say that they have the mental hardware, so to speak, to make sense and to value the experience, make sense of and to value the experience of, of voting and that since there would be no other compelling reason for excluding them, then we should just presume that they should um, have have this right uh, on the same terms as as, as everyone else. Right, right. Um, yeah, and you know, I mean, I'm sure that there are, are some eight-year-olds that are, um, in their political understanding, you know, every bit as sophisticated as some adults uh, who are presently allowed to vote under universal suffrage. Um, so let's move to the. Um, uh, to these two classes uh, with respect to um, uh, residency. Um, so uh, under universal suffrage, um, we're concerned with um, uh, non-citizens who reside within the, the given polity um, and uh, the uh, conventional suffrage doctrine says it's permissible to exclude them, to disenfranchise them. Um, and also under universal suffrage, we're concerned with citizens of the polity who do not reside in the polity. And uh, again, under universal suffrage, the conventional suffrage doctrine says uh, non-resident citizens uh, get to vote. Um, and you deny this. So uh, tell us about the non-resident citizens and the citizen non-residents. Sure. So I basically think that the status of having the status of citizen, of, of, of citizen uh, specifically understood as, as, nation, as nationality, being a national of a country is neither necessary nor sufficient for being enfranchised. So basically what I want to do, what I do in, in this chapter is argue for a dissociation of nationality, of citizenship, and uh, voting rights. So the implications of this is that are that on the one hand, uh, non-resident uh, citizens may be uh, justifiably disenfranchised, whereas non-citizen residents uh, should be uh, enfranchised. Uh, and I also examine uh, the case of non-citizen non-residents. Uh, who some have recently argued that um, they should have the right to vote. So let me go through some, some of these these claims. Um, Great. Uh, some people have argued for maintaining the current relationship between citizenship and the right to vote. And what they normally argue uh, is that citizenship matters in the sense that um, it is important for people to be able to freely choose uh, this form of identity, uh, this form of belonging, and this freedom would be violated if we were to automatically grant citizenship and citizenship rights, the right to vote, to um, long-term residents in the polity. Uh, However, I, I find this line of argument uh, uncompelling. I think the right to vote should be treated as we treat other political rights that are autom automatically granted uh, to people on the base uh, as they simply be acquire the relevant uh, conditions. Um, so, for instance, think of other political rights like the right to freedom of uh, political association or freedom of speech. Uh, we grant these rights to permanent residents, uh, some temporary residents, and we, we do this because we think that they are in a position to value these rights and that, that these rights protect an, an important interest that they have, and I think that we should do 
exactly the same with the right to vote without um, establishing this middle step of voluntarily acquiring uh, citizen, uh, citizen status. Um, so, um, of course, so one solution would be just to give automatic citizenship along with the right to vote to long-term residents. Uh, the problem with this, according to critics, is that then this interest in being able to freely choose this identity would be undermined. So then an alternative would be not to grant citizenship automatically, but to grant the right to vote automatically. Uh, the problem with this alternative, according to the critics, is that it dissociates the status of citizenship with rights. In a way, it, beca it becomes an empty status. Um, now, to be honest, I, I don't think that's actually a problem at all. I'm, I'm perfectly happy with, with dissociating uh, the, 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 the formal status of member or of, of citizen with with those rights and um, it's not clear to me why why that would be would be a problem actually I think uh, this is an argument uh, a, a position that I sort of um, outline in the book but I don't really argue for it in detail but I, I think this would be actually a better world if states simply recognized individuals as having different sets of rights, of course, uh, uh, but without, you know, having states uh, going around uh, allocating identity cards, which, which is basically what uh, the, the status of citizen um, is. So, for instance, well, short-term residents would not have full political rights, but long-term residents would automatically have them, and uh, some would have the right to enter and exit the country, immigration rights, others wouldn't have it, but this would no longer uh, be associated to one particular status, uh, such as uh, citizenship, to, to, to one form of, um, of belonging. So uh, the idea would be that rights would be just automatically recognized and granted uh, the moment that people fulfill the conditions and requirements for or their exercise. Excellent. Um, so, um, the uh, one of the I think sort of really compelling. I mean, the whole book I think is compelling in all kinds of ways. But um, one of the really compelling features uh, and discussions in the book is the discussion of felons and um, uh, persons who are incarcerated. Um, and there, uh, you again say under universal suffrage. Um, there's no justification for the disenfranchisement of felons and incarcerated persons. Um, and there you may rely on a distinction between the right to vote and the opportunity to vote. Um, can you tell us about how that argument works? Sure. So the structure of the argument is the same as in the other chapter. So basically, I look at instrumental and non-instrumental considerations in trying to decide whether the exclusion or inclusion of these groups are justified. So as we were you know, talking a little while ago about um, minors and the mental impaired, so one important instrumental consideration is whether their enfranchisement would make things, uh, would produce worse outcomes. I reject that. And a non-instrumental consideration is whether, you know, children and the mentally impaired have any legitimate uh, interest uh, in, in, in being allowed to vote, and that would depend, as I explained, on whether they have the franchise capacity. Now, the same line of, of, of analysis, the same kind of considerations I, I use to think about uh, the other cases, including the case of felons. So from, from an instrumental uh, point of view, uh, some, uh, someone might try to argue that the exclusion of felons is justified because they have already proven that they are incompetent to make a good use of the right to vote. Um, however, when we try to uh, translate that claim into the conclusion that their enfranchisement would actually have negative instrum instrumental implications 
then things are not are, are not that clear. And in this regard, the United States um, is a perfect natural experiment to think about this, because as you know, well, in some states, felons are allowed to vote, and in some states they are not. And there is simply no evidence whatsoever to think that enfranchising uh, felons uh, would produce worse outcomes. In other words, um, there is no evidence that the states where felons are allowed to vote are in some way uh, worse off uh, than the state and connected you know, with the exercise of the right to vote by felons than states where, where they are disenfranchised. So when we look at instrumental considerations, it is difficult to make the case. Now, when we think of non-instrumental considerations and the interests that um, felons might have in, in the right to vote, well, I think they have as strong an interest as, um, as anyone else. Um, I mean, they have the capacity and uh, and the interest in valuing this this opportunity, and and this actually is an important point. I, I want to just to, just to clarify, you know, as as I explained before, I have argued that the right to vote is not a fundamental right, but in saying this, I am not saying that the right to vote is is not valuable at all. I'm not saying that we do not have uh, an interest in in being allowed to vote. I'm not saying that. It is not better to have it than not. No, I, I, on the contrary, I do believe that, that the franchise has some value, personal value, for different reasons that I explain in the book. And uh, this is true as well of, um, of felons. And um, to the extent that there are no good instrumental reasons to think that they should be disenfranchised, um, and to the extent that other arguments that I go over in detail in the book fail, such as the argument that, you know, the famous social contract argument that they have broken the, the law, then they're not uh, eligible to decide who should make the law, and, uh, and a number of other similar arguments I, that I try to, to, to reject in the book. So in the end, I conclude that uh, the, the disenfranchisement of felons, uh, which is one of the most important cases being discussed around the world, is not, uh, is not justified. Now, that said, I mean, this is not an entirely new conclusion, and admittedly, uh, the arguments that I offer in the book, uh, you know, draw from the literature. I mean, this, is, this has been a widely discussed issue, and I, I don't make a, any new, you know, innovative arguments showing why, you know, the disenfranchisement of felons is specifically wrong. Uh, what I think is the main contribution of this chapter is to make is that it makes a distinction between uh, a denial of the right to vote, which I call disenfranchisement proper, and a denial of an opportunity to vote. So denying someone the right to vote is to disqualify her uh, as not being competent or uh, have, as not having a sufficient interest in, in being allowed to vote in a given context. So this would be, a person would be formally disqualified to the, ex uh, disenfranchised to the, to the extent that it, it, it is established that she is not allowed in any circumstance to cast um, a ballot on the, on the basis of these considerations. Whereas a denial of an opportunity to vote of, a, of an enfranchised person is different. This simply means that um, a person might not enjoy um, an opportunity, an instance for actually casting a ballot. So just to illustrate, so imagine that you are um, hiking on election day and uh, you're in the middle of a mountain and uh, you want to, to exercise your right to vote. You're not disqualified in any way. You're not formally disenfranchised, but suppose you're in the middle of the mountain and you want to cast uh, a ballot. Now, there would be technologies that would allow persons to cast a ballot from, from those circumstances. I mean, we, we could imagine an application that would allow them to, to vote from their uh, 
smartphones or stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And we can discuss whether uh, the absence of certain opportunities to vote are justified or not. Uh, we might say, well, look, you decided to go hiking on election day, and you can't. You don't really have a complaint that you know uh, you you have not been provided with a fair opportunity to vote. Uh, whereas other instances, we might want to to say that certainly count as violations of a fair opportunity uh, to vote. But so so once we have in mind the distinction between disenfranchisement, the denial of the right to vote proper, and the denial of an opportunity to vote, then this casts some important light on the question of, of felon voting rights in general. Uh, because even though, as I, have argue, uh, as I have mentioned, as I argue in the book, I don't think that felons can be legitimately disenfranchised, I do believe that uh, we do not uh, necessarily have to go to every prison in the world and ensure that in, that felons are uh, allowed to vote in the next election. So why why do I think this? Well, in in many contexts um, in which the rule of law again is weak and uh, there is corruption, um, unfortunately, this is not uh, you know an exclusive condition of undeveloped. Uh, uh, the, the democracies, but also this occurs in some pretty old and uh, well-established democracies, the conditions of, of prisons do not really amount, uh, are, not, are not good enough to allow persons to, to cast a free vote, in the sense that prisons are often, in some places, you know, controlled and run by criminal gangs and uh, we, uh, there are good reasons to fear that the integrity of the electoral process in those circumstances could be uh, seriously um, compromised. Um, in extreme circumstances, I mean, this might be, for some listeners, hard to believe, but in, in my country, in Mexico, for instance, as in many other countries, some prisons are really uh, places, um, really anarchical places where uh, the last thing that you can imagine that would run smoothly is, you know, the conduction of of of, of, of an electoral process. So, mm-hmm. of course, I mean, the appropriate conclusion is that we should go. It, it is morally urgent that we go to all these places and ensure that people have adequate conditions and uh, a, a life where they can, you know live with dignity and so on, and that, among other things, they would uh, be allowed um, to cast a ballot. Um, But in the meanwhile, the question, what do we do before uh, that happens, uh, is is complicated, and I do not think that recognizing uh, the right to vote of felons necessarily leads to the conclusion that we have to go to all these places, and irrespectively of the circumstances, um, felons should be should be allowed to vote. So, um, so that's basically the argument in that in, in that part of the book. And am I am, am I remembering right that one of the the ways in which you think an electoral process can um, go wrong, and one of the ways in which in in certain um, maybe very many, maybe most prisons, an electoral process would go wrong, um, is if the votes are coerced? Is that the, is that the worry? Yes, definitely. I mean, there is, um, you know, as, as I said, uh, some prisons, some parts of some prisons, uh, some prisons are run and controlled by criminals, and uh, they, they can have ways of, of um, um, messing with, with the process such that um, yes, the vo- votes would not be freely cast. I mean, the, there is uh, that's a, con- a context that is ripe for all sorts of uh, electoral uh, fraud that um, we might have that we have good reasons not to uh, to prevent. So um, yes, but, uh, you know the manipulation mm-hmm. of ballot boxes, uh, coercion, uh, you know. We would have to first make sure that 
um, felons have just basic adequate information about, you know, <laughs> you know the, the the contest itself, you know, the 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 candidates, the, their proposals, and and so on, <laughs> and um, so this this would be uh, difficult to accomplish, at least in 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 some contexts. Now that said, right. I, I do believe that there are some countries in uh, where the prison system um, you know would allow this to happen perfectly so actually let me give a, an illustration you know th- there is a uh, a trend now I mean more and more people are advocating for other forms of punishment of you know alternatives to imprisonment uh, well such as wearing um, g- GPS bracelets mm-hmm. uh, and it if, if, if a person is in that situation and she is able to attend a regular voting booth, I, I mean, that would be no problem at all. So the problem is only uh, in those circumstances in which imprisonment uh, takes place under such conditions of, uh, you know, uncertainty regarding the integrity of the process that, uh, you know, we might be Justified in, in not um, not going ahead and establishing mechanisms that would allow felons to vote from prison. Well, excellent. Um, that's uh, that, that's fascinating. Um, so, um, uh, Claudio, you've been very generous with your time, and um, uh, we're running out. Um, I wonder if uh, I can ask you uh, just as a last question. Um, to say something about um, the 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 place that you see um, uh, this book and uh, your work and maybe even some work that you're uh, um, looking at in the future, uh, w- where does this reside or what kind of impact would you like the book to have on uh, current democratic theory or where where do you think your 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 book uh, sort of lands uh, uh, within that broader field? Well, you know, um, one of the main questions, if not the most important question in democratic theory, is, has to do precisely with the justification of democracy. And um, I've been, I'm somewhat unsatisfied with, with the way in which uh, political philosophers have approached this question, in the sense that typically people try to make a very broad and general and abstract arguments for something that, you know, it's often described as the right to political participation or the right to have a say. Um, Now, there is no such thing. There's no such thing as the right to participate or the right to have a say. What there are instead are different political rights, the right to freedom of speech, the right to freedom of association, the right to run for office, the right to vote, and and, and other more specific rights. Uh, Thinking seriously about democracy is to think seriously about specific institutions. So uh, this book, I I think, is an effort to try to to make a contribution in that direction. Um, so, So I have singled out the right to vote for for serious scrutiny and um, and I would like I mean if, if if I could make a wish I would like to, <laughs> to see more uh, you know studies of this sort in, uh, you know uh, more uh, philosophical inquiries on specific on concrete um, institutions rather on rather than abstract you know phenomena such as uh, the right to have a say or the, or the right to political participation. I, I, by the way, do think that some political rights are basic fundamental rights. Uh, for instance, the right to freedom of political speech. Uh, but I have a different view regarding the right to vote, as I have, uh, as I tried to explain uh, in this book. So, um, so, so, so the book tries to make a contribution on this uh, more institutional oriented um, approach to, um, to, to democratic theory that I think it, you know, t- traces back to uh, thinkers such as um, Tocqueville or more importantly John Stuart Mill 
or the federalists, for instance. I mean, it seems that some contemporary work in democratic theory is a little bit um, too abstract and uh, disengaged with real practical issues of institutional design. And I think it would be uh, desirable to start uh, to go back to that tradition, um, you know, of, of, of doing political philosophy, which involves, you know, serious moral thinking about concrete specific institutions. So if, if I, if I uh, had to describe what this book tries to do in general, well, I, I could take uh, no better example than uh, John Stuart Mill's uh, considerations on representative uh, government, uh, although instead of you know Mill's broad focus on all the institutions of representative governments, here I have singled out the franchise. And uh, well, of course, you know there are some notable examples of this kind of of, of theorizing um, among contemporary scholars. Um, one obvious case is uh, Dennis Thompson, who has uh, you know has been an important inspiration for me, among among others. Um, so, um, so I hope I hope uh, the book is regarded as um, a contribution uh, in, in in that sense. Well, excellent, Claudio. You've been um, uh, it's been great to talk to you about your book, Democracy and Disenfranchisement: The Morality of Electoral Exclusions. Um, thanks so much for appearing on New Books in Philosophy. No, on the contrary, Bob, I really appreciate uh, your time, and uh, it's, it's been great talking to you. Well, thank you. Take care now. Thank you. You've been listening to my interview with Professor Claudio Lopez Guerra of the Center for Research and Teaching in Economics in Mexico City. We were talking about his new book, Democracy and Disenfranchisement, The Morality of Electoral Exclusions, published by Oxford University Press. I'm Robert Talese, your host. This is New Books in Philosophy. Thank you for listening. Thank you.